I wanted to raise this as a topic for a reason. Uh, I believe very much that uh, when our national teams go on the pitch, they they are the, the finished product. They do describe our nation. They they show who we are. I think we all know that about cultures and styles of football um, reflecting uh, national teams and cultures, and that's why the Germans are different to the to the South Americans. Um, probably if I take you to this and talk about Oz, about Australia on the world stage, and this is one moment I've chosen. Um, I think uh, you could choose any moment. You could choose qualifying in 2005. You could choose uh, the Matildas in 2010 when they won the Asian Cup. I was fortunate enough to have the moment uh, at a World Cup last year, uh, standing, singing the national anthem and watching Australia play um, play Nigeria, for example, a team that in seven times Australia had never won, and on that match we won. Um, I think you right, think right back to the Joeys in 1999 when they uh, when they made the final of the World Cup. So I guess what I want to say there is uh, um, the feeling of pride you have um, watching the national team do things like that. And I think, um, you know, some people are more lucky that they know one of the players that they uh, are related to. Um, They're at the match. They coach them at some stage right down to, I guess, um, uh, you know, the the people on the coaching staff uh, at the moment in that game. So the pride you have can be exacerbated by the amount of involvement you have and, and your contribution to, to that success. Um, what I'm going to try and talk about tonight in a couple of different segments is, is what I have some experience of, which is currently working with the Joeys. Um, uh, it's, um, it's usually the first chance that they have to play national team football. Um, and um, so it's an important start for them. And I'm going to talk about that a little bit first and about, some of the, the the process we go through there to select players because I think once they've been part of the Joeys, um, you know, they start to kick on and I'm not saying by any means that, does that age group all the way carry through to the Socceroos. But starting point um, and then I want to talk to you about that and then, and then head on to a little bit of discussion about where we might make the game more sustainable in the future. But I'd like at this stage to, if you can, you visualise a, a spiral staircase and whether there's more components than what those three are, if you look from above the spiral staircase, you see those components broken down a bit like pieces of pie. But when you look from the side of the staircase, you see although those moments repeat, they repeat always on a higher level and I think that's what we're trying to do. We're, there's a process about helping players improve um, and we want to repeat that but keep uh, taking them to another level if possible. So. Probably the first one is about identifying talent, and and you know, th- this is again from my perspective only. I, I don't I don't want to try and uh, make up things that aren't mine. But for example, when I go looking for talent, and the people that I I often share and spend time with to try and get uh, some idea of where the talent is, I want you to think of this like going out for dinner. That you don't want to go to a restaurant, sorry, to a street, and and all the restaurants have the same food. You know, it's it's nine fish and chip shops. I think we're looking for difference. We're looking for genuine talent. We're looking for a kid with a feeling for the match, a kid who's um, uh, special in their own way and that you know you're getting, um, you know, something you really want there. So when we're scouting and looking for talent, we're not looking for a copy of every other player. And and uh, I think when the kid can, because when they play national team football, they have to be able to express themselves who they are. They have to be able to show those moments, especially in a Joey's group where, down the line, they're going to be a soccer room, but early on, they've got to, they've got to um, yeah, they've got to they've got to give the, the head coach something to be excited about. I think it has to be a player that gets you out of your seat or makes you smile. I, I can't go to a game and and look to pick a player that doesn't give me moments where I think you know he's in, he's inspiring to me. Um, multiple capture points is a big one because we got stuck for a while there when the uh, when the institutes of sport all stopped the, the the state ones and you got to a stage where almost it was just the national championships that was to decide which kid was going to go to the AIS or in national teams and I think that, that that obviously lots of players miss out whether it's um because of an injury because they weren't in that state team because of a late developer um, give an example Ange Postacoglu um, when he was taking uh, the under-17s uh, and Pete Klamoski was working for him. Pete was also working at Westfields with me and, and he said to Ange, look, there's a couple of good kids at, at Westfields I think you should have a look at. And this is a month out from the World Cup. They'd never been part of it. He flew up from Melbourne to watch a game, watched the school team play and um, a couple of boys went to the World Cup. Uh, and the point being is 
you've got to keep your eyes open all the time. You've, you've got to look all the time. Um, and so we, we go to a lot of matches. I'm very, very fortunate to have great support from, from a lot of uh, clubs and, and member federation TDs who will always let me know about good players. Um, and obviously the thing we're trying to build now is the elite matches where in every state we'd like to have two elite matches every term. Um, we work hard with, with the clubs and the member feds to pull together the best players, play a high-level match, um, mix kids up, put talent against talent, and, uh, and use those as an extra, extra way of identifying uh, players who might be able to take a step up. Um, and, and very simply with that, in terms of categorising things to keep things simple, um, uh, you know, I like to use a five-star rating. So, you know, how does a player go for you? Uh, you might watch him in a match at club football and say, wow, that kid was outstanding. I'd, I'd, I'd say he was five-star today. Um, and I think then there's nothing wrong with that, even if you identify that the game is poor. Um, but what we should all be doing is we should all be trying to push that player up, not hold that player back. So we want to do everything we can to get them into a, a higher level match. And with the with the elite matches, uh, when we've run those, we've we've uh, we've usually had GPS on on the players. Uh, we've had them videoed. We've had individual clips done. Um, what we've found is that we're starting to get a benchmark of um, the physical output that happens in the game, and not not because we're interested that it has to be. Uh, a physical beast, but rather when the game tempo is sitting uh, at an average of about 120 to 125 metres per minute, then we know it's a competitive match. And, and in that way, I can kind of rate the match a bit higher. So a highly rated player in a low-level match comes in. If he's still highly rated in that match, then we have someone to talk about for national team sort of thing. So simply like that, we, we try to try to work in that way. Um, you know, and then obviously with minimal funding these days, we uh, we we tend to get into playing pretty quickly. So this is an area where we, where we limited a bit, but very much last year we were fortunate. Um, contacts through Football Australia, uh, Mark Falvo got us a, an arrangement to go and play in a tournament in Turkey. Uh, it was called a UEFA Assist tournament and we played Turkey, Guinea and Tanzania. Um, and those matches were invaluable for us and it put a few of our boys in, in, in the picture because the year leading into trying to play the Asian Cup, the Joeys played zero international matches. Zero international matches between qualifying to go to the Asian Cup and playing at the Asian Cup. And then we played our first match against Korea and lost 3-0 and people were uh, talking about how poor the kids were, but they had nothing to go from. Um, and so here, uh, last year, we were lucky enough to play in Turkey. Off the back of that, I think we we, uh, we drew some interest and England invited us to play in a tournament. So we went in in September to England and we played England, Brazil and, and South Korea, um, top matches for us. So And these preparation camps and tournaments, they're, they're so important for the players to get used to the tempo, different styles of football, different weather conditions, um, just to make sure they're, they're road tested, they're, they're ready to go. Um, then it comes to... Uh, FIFA and AFC competitions, and I guess the big question is when we take a youth team there, are we going there um, for results or are we going there to develop players or are we there to try and show our style of play and et cetera? Um, I'd personally like to, uh, you know, tell you about my three priorities when I went to the World Cup last year. Um, the first one was to, was to play in a way that enabled the most talented players to show who they were. And, uh, and to be identified, um, to hopefully be um, targeted by, by clubs who could then, then contact their club and try and make arrangements to, to, to move them. Um, and, and I'll be open about saying that. We wanted to play in a way where the best players could highlight their talents. The second one was that I really like the FIFA report um, to have an influence on, on the adjectives that we use to describe Australia. So the build-up was... Boring. The build-up was varied. Um, there were creative players. If, if there's words, if there's adjectives to describe our football that are pleasing, then that was my second objective. And my third objective was to get results because I figured if the, if the boys played well enough uh, and that we forced the FIFA technical study group to say nice things about us, then we would have won some matches and I would have got my personal um, you know, enjoyment out of that. Uh, the next thing is that happens at international level is obviously – there's there's uh, more scouting. There's uh, there's much much larger numbers of scouts available, especially if you play in Europe. 
Um, uh, they're watching and uh, they're keeping an eye on players. And, and and when I've got big data there, um, you know, all these games are cut and coded and multiple platforms around the world share it and the data is available to anybody. So it's a chance for a player to be identified and obviously the, the smart scouts, agents and clubs will uh, notice them in an international match and then um, and then try and follow them back at their club football. Now, after the World Cup, the captain of France went back to training with Neymar. Our captain went back to training with Sydney FC. Um, he's played, I think, eight minutes of, uh, of, of A-League football this season um, and, then, and then he's obviously gone off uh, overseas. But where do you go back to? How can they track you, et cetera? So... First, we're finding some talent and we're in a very short period of time, we're trying to mould them together in a national team and then play them in tournaments and give them the exposure. I think then after that um, comes to develop. I learned a lesson uh, at Westfield in my 20 years. I was trying very hard to make all the players technically sound and similar and proficient in everything. Um, and after a while, I worked out, you have to let them be who they are. One guy has better touch, one guy is a dribbler. Um, uh, you have to allow that creative edge and you have to, I think, take a focus on building on those strengths and individual qualities um, because that's going to be the main thing that gets them through the door. Then if you can then iron out some of their issues, some of the areas they're not strong in, that's great. But um, trying to make all the players the same and having no point of difference when you look to the bench as a national team coach um, or, or as a scout overseas, what are they buying? What do they want? Um, and, and in terms of our kids, I think if you – start taking away what's natural for them, what they feel for the game and what they think they can give to the game, I think then you, you really, you're not going to ever capitalise on what their best is. Um, so in the Joeys, we train with, with small groups a lot. Uh, we, do, we do meetings with individual players. We don't so much train with individuals because we've got a very short amount of time. But certainly back at club level, um, I'd love to think that the clubs um, spend the time working on, on players doing the things that they really need to do um, uh, re repeating key actions, you know, centre halves who can't hit a ball and can't make a tackle. Uh, it's all nice to say they can drive in and play a reverse ball, but can they do key things? Can they defend their box on crosses? And I think we need to train those situations because otherwise you're trying to put someone into the workforce in elite football um, without without the skills, and they're not going to survive. And, and 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 at that stage at top level, they're not going to. You're not going to want to spend time on every problem the player has. I think touching up on, on Ronaldo's best few moves to be able to beat a man and score is a lot better than trying to teach him how to, how to hit a ball. Um, I think definitely uh, we have to. I think it's Eric Worthington, 1970-something. Um, we, we have to get people just understanding the principles of play, not being fixed on formation, especially when they come into the national team because they're, they're coming from multiple styles of play, multiple formations, philosophies, and we come in quickly. So if we're talking about applying pressure, we're not saying a number seven must. We're saying if you're nearest to the ball, you must. And, uh, you know, and trying to get players to understand those things and, and, and train on situations, not systems. Um, and I think then uh, a little bit of what I've said before, Obviously, I'd love to go to another level with clubs where perhaps can we ever build a bridge where the FFA and the club can work together um, on detail of the player's development. So that's prior to them travelling, that's after them travelling, that's discussing the report of, of, of performances, that's me coming to watch them play or staff that, that work with their national teams come to watch them play and being open and saying, we all want this kid to get over the line. It's not about whether you're right or I'm wrong, it's, it's, it's how we go about um, everybody being a helping hand and pushing the player forward. So that's a little bit of the current environment that that we use and that the method that we're currently following. Um, and I'd say there's lots of things we could do with more money. Uh, I think I'm particularly fortunate that I, I have some great relationships with um, with the, the people in each member federation that I'm able to visit and ask for their help and, and they provide their help. So probably this stage um, I was going to go for a little bit of a, a break. Um, so if, uh, if there are any questions or comments, probably now's a great time and then I'll jump back into the next bit. Gary, Gary Cole, if you could uh, ask your question, please. G'day, Trevor. Yeah. Thanks for tonight, mate. Really appreciate it. Um, 
I, I sort of asked this question to Sean. I listened to Sean Douglas the other night about changing grassroots football, and, and I think uh, we all agree that letting kids play is a fantastic opportunity for them to learn. Yep. From your perspective of being in a position where you need to identify them and prepare them for uh, Asian and, and world elite tournaments, where, where where do we draw the line? Where where do we need to help kids get better through formal coaching so that they're best prepared to be able to go and compete in those tournaments? With children, with young players, um, I, I think he, I think um, you'll remember a coach named Horst Vine. Um, he turned up at Westfield one day um, and he's a, an amazing um, about educating players and he said, how do you, how, how do you um, if you've got your child with you, how do you cross the road? And we talked about holding hands and looking both ways and, and whatever and he simply said, um, okay, so I'll do the same as you. I'll hold the child's hand and I'll tell them to tell me when we go. Yeah, because I'm still I'm still there to to help them. So I think if it was my own children, I'm coaching my own son at the moment because we have a bit of extra time. Um, he's twelve, so it's got to be fun, and we make up a lot of stuff and we just keep things fun. If he needs help, if he wants to know why he can why something can be better, so I think with little kids, look to the kid, look at the look at the human being you're working with, and think about what they need. Um, the greatest coaches in the world, whether it's your John Woodens and those type of coaches who will walk behind a player and say one thing, move your feet, and they'll say any more. So I think building your skills as a coach and but thinking very much about the person you're trying to help um, is the way to go. So no, with under sixes, I don't think we should be working on patterns of play. Um, I think it's all about ball control at that stage and, and, and knowing knowing the, the individual. But there might be a 12-year-old who you go, you know what, mate, you're doing quite well at this and I see you actually see that pass, you actually see that in the game, you have that idea, would, would you want to spend some time working on that and then you maybe can help them in that way. Did you any follow-up to that, Gary? You're right. Well, there is often an, on a different tack. I, it's probably the first time in a coaching presentation I've seen for a while where, where you, we're talking about principles of play. Um, and it seems to me that they've been lost a little bit in more recent times, and we get focused on systems. How how do you how do you think the modern younger coaches learn? Where do they learn about the principles of play? Yeah, well, obviously. Sorry, sorry, mate, that's a tough one. No, look, I think I think obviously there's there's got to be plans to bring that back into the national curriculum, the same as teaching people how how to actually break down and teach a technique, which which we all did when we started. Um, uh, that's the first one. So I'm not meaning to tip that one on Sean, but I'm pretty sure that that, that will be addressed in time. Um, yeah. yeah, because they have a tremendous capacity to then apply it to anything and they have a chance of having a career anywhere if it's not fixed on a formation, it's fixed on understanding football and, and, and the principles you apply to be successful. So it's it's a must, Gaz, but, yeah, it's it's got to come soon. <laughs> Amen, brother. Uh, Joel, Joel Lamb, if you could unmute yourself, please, mate. Yes. Hello. Hello, Trevor. Uh, uh, based on what I listened just now, we, you mentioned about uh, the learning of uh, the situational phases in the game. So uh, rather than uh, playing in, in, a, in a system, I can say, so do you think it is important to build uh, the learning of uh, these uh, situational phases since grassroots? Uh, from from little things such as uh, like maybe one on one or two v one to build this learning through uh, the grassroots phases. I think it's I think it's vital. Um, you'll see later on in part of my presentation what I think of one v one and and technique um, and people with self expression. Um, yeah, they're there for a reason. Um, players can learn things so quickly. If if I can quickly give you my 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 personal opinion on technique, is this. A child learns very quickly. So why do we spend our time teaching them only one way to pass, inside a foot to inside a foot? Let them chip it, bend it, put it in their ear and pull it out their elbow. I don't, I don't mind because the more creativity they're allowed to have when they're little, um, there's plenty of time when they're older to work out, you know what, I'm not a great dribbler, so I'm not going to do it so much. Or, you know what, if I want to have that pass as part of my game, I really need to put time on it. But if you, if you start basic, if you only ever start basing and don't teach touch, feeling for weight and timing, creativity, uh, disguise on things, 
what a boring football do you start with? And all of a sudden, then you try to throw some magic dust on it and say, go dribble two players. So it can't happen. It has to happen from the beginning. Ian Greener, your question as a follow-up to Gary's. Yeah, thanks, Glenn, and great to see you, Trevor. Uh, following on from, from uh, Gary's comments, when do you think that we should start to specialise in player positions? Because you were saying about uh, centre-backs being able to head and clear the ball. When, when should we start putting young players into a, a particular position and trying to make them the best they can possibly be in that position? That's one question. And just a comment. I love hearing coaches talking about principles of play, technique, because that's come out of our coaching scheme. We need to get that back in. So great to hear that language, Trevor. Thanks, mate. Um, yeah, I didn't make it up. I, I, think, I think I'm just part of a, a group of people who are disciples of football. But look, with the positions, maybe, I think it always changes on the player because... Um, you know, some of some of our great Socceroos were playing first team football at 16, and they stayed in that position. Um, another guy might be one. He's got a bit of this. He's got a bit of that. If you even look at a player like Philip Lahm, who's played as a fullback and played as a central midfielder at, at elite level, um, so I think a bit of flexibility is important. And with national teams, obviously, if you aren't the very best player in the country in one position, then being able to play a second position is very handy for us away in a camp, especially if we have a couple of players get a, I don't know, food poisoning and you have to do something or there's a send-off and you have to make a change. Um, so I'm going to say around about 16 or 17. Prior to that, I think, but the players themselves, if, you, if you've played enough games of a certain size, they'll tend to put themselves in the position they want to play. They'll give you an idea. Um, and, uh, but then, then you have the story, I think it was, um, I think it was Damien Murray. Who, who trialed as a right fullback somewhere uh, early in his career, and then they went, "Hang on, you're quite good," and they put him up front, and, and then he was an NSL top scorer. So, uh, yeah, I, I don't know that there's a set time. I think it's very much you need to know the player, and you need to um, you need to watch them a lot, and you need to um, look at what options there are for them with their skill set to, to make a living out of the game. It, because this talk tonight is about elite football. It's certainly not about grassroots. It it has a lot of love for grassroots, and it has a lot of um, uh, everything from grassroots affects what I'm going to say, but I'm now thinking the step from being in the national team at under 16, under 17, and now where do you go with it? Thanks, Trevor. Yeah, great. Thank you. Brendan Connolly's got two questions, and then I'll uh, we'll chase up Paul Edwards and Luke after the next break. Okay. Brendan, if you could jump on with your two questions, please, Mark. Yeah, thank you, Glenn. Uh, hello, Trevor. Uh, just for players in isolation, what are some situational practices they could do alone is one question. And for two, in relation to technique and tactical work for coaches, do you feel these are two areas that need to be more addressed at future courses in FFA curriculum for B and C licence, et cetera? Can you say the, the, that second one again? Uh, in relation to technique and tactical work, do you feel these are two areas that need to be more addressed at courses in the FFA curriculum? Yes, for sure. Yes, for sure, for that one. Um, in terms of isolation, I'll give you an example. The current group of uh, – we, we should just have returned from a tournament in Europe with the Joeys. We didn't get to have that tournament. We reached out to the 40 players who were on the on the standby list for that and we asked them to identify a player that they, they felt an affinity with. Um, I feel a bit like him. I look a bit like him. It's good. Mohamed Toure from Adelaide, he chose uh, Kylian Mbappe. Not a bad choice. They both are faster than my car. Um, <laughs> They had to say why, because oh, I, I, I like to take players, I have this touch, I like to do that. So they, they actually had to make clips and send them to us and then we followed up with a phone call and I said, so why did they get you to do it? And they said, I don't know. I said, well, now when you go and do your personal training, go be him. Because when it comes to training, visualisation and imagination is so important. If it's just repeat, 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 do 10 of the same, okay, that's all right for a little while. But eventually um, in the game, it's an open game, so things move, situations change, and you can, as a child, even as an adult, you can imagine things and therefore that can build your, your feeling of how you're going to use it in the game, how you can execute. So they're, they're, they should be off doing that now, you know, working in that way. Yeah? Thank you. The next bit is um, is about uh, wh where we're at. So we've got this here. This is the National Playing Style Statement. 
Um, and the young boy here, Tristan Hammond, um, Aussie kid, Sydney-based, took a big risk at 11, I think, moved to Portugal. He's been with Sporting Lisbon for the last four years. Um, talented boy. So you've got that there. So when you see the playing style statement, what sticks out for you? And I tried to have a bit of a go at it. So then I went, okay, what about proactive, effective possession, cutting edge, creative individuals, quick transition, intelligent collective press, strong winning mentality. You, if this is our playing style, this is the stuff we've got to work on, right? So there has to be winning and losing. There has to be games with a lot of transition in them. There has to be times where, especially in defending, which for kids is not sexy, um, intelligence in how they go about doing things. But then I'm going to take another another um, level and then see, is this get you even closer to what we should be looking for? So now there's a lot of words there, but is that what we're looking for? Proactive people, creative individuals. You know, the story about the little kid in, in school and there's a um, teacher who says, oh, kids, we're going to draw a flower today. And so one little girl starts drawing a flower and she's pretty much finished. She's colouring it in. The teacher goes, stop, 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 start again. We're all going to draw a stick. Then we're going to draw a circle. Then we're going to put one petal here, you understand. Um, and they're, they're, um, when that kid has it inside them, which Tristan has, I have, to, I have to coach him in a way that allows him to be himself and to show what he's got and to be able to make those decisions. So it's part of talent ID, it's part of talent development, and it's definitely part of exposure. You've got to have big enough um, trust in your players that when the big match is on, you'll let them be themselves. You're not going to contra- uh, constrain them, et cetera. That's, this is, again, this is an opinion piece, everyone. So if, if you... if uh, yeah, so then I'm getting to opinion here and something I've been chipping away at for a while is about the concept of when you develop a player, can you make them um, good 1v2 in attack? And what, are that, what I mean by that is if I'm a defender, can I decide when to drive with the ball and then pass? Can I decide when to draw a striker in and then release a ball? And if I'm smart enough, because I've drawn in one striker and released the ball to someone and put them in a better position, I've actually cut out two defenders by what I've done. If I'm a midfielder and I can position between lines that the first pass beats a man and then I take my touch forward and then I break the second line, um, et cetera. And, and in particular, and this is where we've had some trouble and, and one of the big men's been on, on, on media recently with Mark Viduka, is there was a player who could play back to goal at the highest level. Um, and certainly for all front third players for the Joeys, we've looked for players who can play one versus two in attack in the most difficult situations. That's people who can protect the ball with their body, can bring other people into play, can turn their marker, can use creative touches to spin their marker, or can even come off their marker and run at one, and if not beat a second, can actually deliver a ball behind the second. So you keep creating an overload by your actions. Okay. When I did an analysis of our Asian Cup cycle, Tristan Hammond drove me nuts with the things that he didn't do. He wasn't in the position I wanted him to be at times. He sometimes did this. He was the only player who consistently beat two and three players with the ball. So then he had to come to the World Cup. Uh, 1v2 in defence. Imagine if your player understands the principles of defending and, whoops, we've gone one step too far there. Apologies. Uh, so imagine the most you can really expect of a player is to be a good one-on-one defender. But maybe if I'm a good one-on-one defender in terms of my positioning, marking, ball side, goal side, um, cutting passes out, etc., maybe I can nullify or stop the player I'm up against and I can also affect the decision-making of the person that makes it, the, you know, if I was in a one-versus-two situation. If we, if we start thinking about how we design our training to give the players the capacity to, to manage or create overloads um, individually as well as part of a collective, then I think you have something exciting. We should be able to look on the pitch when Australia goes on the pitch and we should be excited to see what our team plays against any team in the world. Don't worry about my tactics, what my formation is or whatever. They should be good enough when they step on the pitch, you go, wow. You rub your hands together and you go, this is something. So example. Australia's with the ball, maybe they're in a 4-3-3 formation. Let's simplify it right down to this sort of situation here. 
where we're talking now about the nine and the 11. We're talking about are they in a position to receive the ball? And the nine, you might say, no, he's not. Well, he might be wanting to receive it behind. The 11 has, instead of standing wide, is standing on his player. From those situations is the first thing in their mind to penetrate and second to protect the ball. So are they looking to be a threat and do they have the skills to be a threat? And then, then you're looking at when the ball's played in um, about, about all these other qualities here. So I can pick up on those questions, Glenn. Luke Harris, if you could uh, come in with your question, Luke. Hi, Trevor. I just wanted to um, see if you could elaborate on what you said your mistakes or what you learnt from coaching at Westwood Sports High were. So more detail in that individual development. Yeah, so we were trying to give a, a solid curriculum and teach people to do everything. And um, at times we... we um, tried to master the basics, make sure everyone was very two-footed, um, uh, try and teach a lot of similar things. Um, I'll give you a couple of examples, right? There's a kid named Terry Antonis, a kid named Dimitri Petrados. Unbelievable touch. And we made up all sorts of fun games with them. Um, and pretty much they could they could have played everything in one touch. And sometimes Terry wouldn't play the ball where he's meant to or Dimitri wouldn't do it. Um, and I used to get frustrated. And then after a while I went, you know what, he's just turned the, the same guy. He's, turned, he's beaten him three times, which he didn't need to do. But the pass he actually gave, he gave to someone in a great position and didn't put them under pressure. Yeah? And then I started to think to myself, you, you need to coach and let them take it on board, but you need them also to be who they are. If there's someone who, who has that capacity to draw an extra player in before releasing the ball, it's, it's only when he doesn't have any effect with it that then you have something to coach. But if he's actually maybe hasn't played it when you wanted to play. And, and I, if I wind back the clock to, I think, 1990 or something, I was doing a similar thing at Football New South Wales, well, trying to teach a, a certain thing that I was told to teach in, in the topic in a game and Paul Reid kept hit, hitting a ball that I hadn't, I hadn't seen yet. He was 12 and Paul kept hitting these passes and I'd go, stop, you just, I want you to, and then I'd look over and read his pass would drop on someone I hadn't seen. So you've got to be careful intervening there, Luke. Um, and and definitely become better at watching and, and, and only thinking how it's actually going to make the player better as opposed to you trying to get your topic out, if that makes sense. Uh, Gareth, Gareth Naven, if you could come on with your question, please. I just wanted to ask, um, the qualities you've just mentioned, Trev, and, and probably something to help you in the future, is that do you think our competition structure allows us to develop the qualities we require, which you've just mentioned from under fives upwards? So some of those qualities you have mentioned, do you think 100% of our players within our competition structure can actually practice it by the games they play, you know, from a, a 4v4, 5v5, 7v7, 8v8? Do you think we don't do enough to help them develop those qualities you require at national team level? Yeah, it's a loaded question. I have to agree with you. So the thing I'm going to say now is, is, um, is it depends on how you attack it, right? Like, And I'm going to make my point later with, with, with what I'm going to propose. Do you start with governance and um, and putting a fence around people? So someone came in with a great presentation one day and they said, oh, you've got a cattle station that's 100 miles by 100 miles. How do you keep all the cows in? And people were trying to think how big the fence had to be. And the answer was put the food in the middle. Hmm. So... If we come back to that same problem and say, can we not put the child and the athlete and the development of footballers as a, a national responsibility? At whatever level you're at, at some stage you're contributing to the national team um, and our own national pride when we sing, sing and watch the Matildas play, etc. If you wind it all the way back and therefore at Football West you have a discussion about what the players need the most and then get the ones who organise the competition in, and say you need to organise that competition that allows for this to happen. That's so we should organise the competition based on the individual player, not the on, team. On what players need? On what players need? You know, so in Belgium, for example, um, uh, I, I listened to a great podcast a little while ago, and they they saw the value in one v one and two v two and that sort of thing, and they actually did an analysis and broke down a whole heap of their five v five and six v six games, and went for little kids, for six, seven, eight, nine year olds, there wasn't enough time on the ball, and they could prove it, and then they actually went round and they actually sold it around their country to all the member federations, saying we need you to jump on board with this, we need you to play a lot more one v one or two v two, which was like one v one plus keepers. Yeah. Um, 
So, yeah, Gareth, uh, we need to do, and, and that's a thing, we're a very diverse country and I don't think we should ever lose that. We're a country with very different situations and very different um, influences in terms of ethnic backgrounds and finances and stuff like that. I think the thing is, is to look at what type of player we want to produce and in each environment, everyone does their best job of trying to do that. That's my opinion. Mm. Yeah. And, and one, one smaller community solution doesn't mean it's wrong just because it's not the same as what the big city's doing. Yeah. Um, but the motivation must be purely about the athletes and the players and make, because when they're good, we all smile. Coaching gets easier. The game becomes enjoyable. Um, and we spend less time worrying about all the officiating and all the other crap. Trevor, a question from uh, Edwards. Uh, I think it's Paul Edwards, so I can't turn on his mic. Is How many players would you ideally like in regards to the depth of the squad at, at tournaments? And is there enough depth at this moment? There's never enough. There's never enough. Um, uh, I think, you know, an example is the national championships are sometimes 250 kids. Um, I think 250 is hard to monitor, but I think we could try. Um, normally leading into a tournament, we, we sort of narrow it down to 40 or so that we've been watching and we're trying to compare and we're trying to find the best ways we can to do that. Um, and I, I can get to depth in a minute, the moment, in a minute, but if you think in this way, the players eligible in that age group need to be playing. So if you're talking about the Ollie Roos, there's an issue in the A-League. They're not all playing. If we're talking about the Joeys, just say I can get five or six kids overseas, that opens up opportunities for five or six more kids here in Australia. So maybe we've improved our depth that way by promoting people at the top, which is the per, you know the main, the main topic of tonight. Um, Adam Peacock, welcome. And uh, if you could ask your question, please. Can you hear me? Yep. Yeah, good. Yeah, cool. How you going? Um, Trev, thanks for, and everyone, thanks for having me along. I'm a bit of an imposter here, but I'm, I'm going to try and get on board with all of these and, um, and get involved because I reckon they're, they're a great idea and I'll, I'll pass it on to um, to Bozza and Robbie that it's actually people talking about football and things are being done behind the close, <laughs> behind um, behind the veil of uh, what we see at the forefront um, that, uh, yeah, so many people care about this, which we already knew. Um, my question to Trevor is a, a pretty general, it's like a pretty basic one, has SAP worked? But it, it's more in the view that, Trevor, you've worked with kids pre-SAP era uh, and you work now with the Joeys, which if my maths are correct, I reckon they started um, in under nines when SAP came in and not every kid obviously came through the same SAP program. But just in a general sense, what they did with that program, the 9 to 12 crucial age, the old Arsene Wenger quote about if they haven't learned what they've got to learn by 12, they're not going to learn it. Is it going, is it the right thing? Have they got it right? Or if there's there's further tweaks or further differences of different things that need to be done at that particular age from what you can see now that the kids are getting to the end of the production line, i.e. working with you at the Joeys? Yeah, interesting. So the, the 2003 age group, which is Tristan Hammond, um, uh, they're the ones who went all the way through. The 2002s, which is Ryan Teague, he, he was one year out of that. Um, I think it's a great starting point. I think national curriculum is a great starting point. I think um, the SAP phase is a nice idea. People call it a SAP program. It, that's just a label and, 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 and boxing something. But the, the skill acquisition phase, the fact that you're supple and you can learn things quicker, I only have to look at my, my children, my my. 10-year-old daughter who, who learns things just really quickly. So in that time, I think the idea of focusing on and trying to get people to repeat core skills is important. The range of those core skills, I watched my boy go through SAP. I didn't see him be shown a lot about changing the weight of a pass. Um, I didn't get him. I think he eventually understood a bit about timing of passes. I think they could have been a lot more efficient at teaching one-on-one, -on -one, like just being more aggressive about taking people. So I think the, the principle is there. It's how well you teach it. And, how, and when I say teach it, it could just be the way you set up the activity. You can score there or you can score there. Now that changes a, a choice a player makes. So I think it was on the right path. It meant that kids who came through that could easily play together in a 4-3-3 if you wanted to. By the time they were 15, you could just go play 4-3-3 and they can come together and play because they, they'd had some structure from the step above SAP. Um, so a beginning point adds, but there's never there's, the horizon never gets closer. So what yeah. we're aiming for, I will always, I'll always aim for the horizon, and as I take a step, I aim again. So, and I think we have to evolve. So you didn't see any glaring deficiencies. The the big knock on it is they don't know how to. That there's nothing done on heading the ball. 
Yeah, and there's nothing done on one-on-one defending, for instance. Yeah, major issue. Major issue one-on-one defending. Major issue on on um, some striking techniques. Yeah. I think running with the ball, they got a lot better. There's a general feeling that most kids want to attack space with the ball. Um, but I think the idea of the pro- there were elements in the program there, Adam. It's just how they were taught. But definitely defending, yeah. uh, tackling. Um, but I've had kids do an assignment for me recently, and they got excited. They explained why they like to play it because you could tackle. And because you could head the ball, and the I got excited. I went, "Well, that's fantastic, boys! You actually identified part of your job." Mm. Uh, so yeah, you're right. You're right. But I think it was, like I say, I think it was a good starting point. Yep, Trev, go back to your presentation and uh, no. Muti and uh, Chris. We'll come back to your questions uh, at next break. Okay. So, guys, what I want to get to is if we look at a player as a sports car, right? an elite footballer as a sports car. And so the product leaving Australia, when the national team plays and you're watching them warm up, are you watching, you know, finely tuned athletes, etc. If they're a sports car, can you write down the name of your favourite sports car? Write that down somewhere. And while you're writing that down, can you write down why it's your favourite? What are its features? Is it that it's got prestige? Is it the look? Is it... Um, is it, you know, what's your connection to it? Is it the performance of it? Are you someone who actually really knows how to drive it? What is it that you're looking for? What do they need to have? What is it about them that's unique? Because obviously a sports car has usually got something unique about it. It's, it's, the, it's the badge, it's the whatever. Uh, what is the quality? If we're looking at our Australian football, our elite national team players being a, um, a, a product of Australia, something we're proud of um, and that we can be known for, what features does it have? You know, does it have, does it have a 13-speaker sound system? Does it have um, certain size rims? Can it accelerate 0 to 100 in a certain amount of time? What is it that the Aussie player... Um, as a sports car, is it just coming on price point? You know what? For for seventy k, it's a top sports car. Um, for half a million, um, that's why I bought it because it's exclusive. So, if we think about an Australian player now, if you jot down what are the things that we would we would want our player to have to to be listed amongst the world's best, and you can look back at the golden generation if you like. You can look at the current Socceroos. Um, but what is it that you you would like to have confidence in that when that player like has he got amazing one v one and acceleration? That's your that's your that's your race car that corners and can accelerate. Has he got unbelievable finishing quality, finishing power? Has he got um, amazing awareness? What is it that you that you want? And then you think about exporting our product. So where's our product going to go? Because what I want you to start thinking about is we could potentially um, do a partnership between all clubs in Australia, the national teams, we all work together that we try and produce a product to sell overseas and we start to become more sustainable, okay? Um, and we, by exporting, um, we, we build depth in our own quality because more will be overseas playing the highest level plus those here. So where do you want them to go? Do you want them to go to Italy? Now, I've watched the, up there. I've just got a little YouTube link, which I'll, I'll share later if you need. It's, it's to a, a doco on, um, on, on the Ferrari factory and that some people, all they do is they clean one little engine part and join it to another engine part. Some people, all they do is stick the windscreen in. But they've been with Ferrari for 20 years because they know what they're producing. They're happy to play their small part in the process, working alongside with other people instead of fighting other people to produce that, to produce something that people around the world want badly. Is it England? Good luck against the Aston Martin. Is it Japan? Because that's a market that's becoming bigger for us. Is it Korea? So your player, those qualities you're looking for, because when Korea, when when Hyundai came to Australia in 1986, and I remember the first cars coming out, you know they were cheap, they were a little rust bucket, they looked like it anyway, but they survived years and years and years, and 
down the line, 30-something years down the line, they're one of the highest sellers in Australia and they're eighth, eighth largest car market in the world, right? They had a dream to export their product around the world and then they've gone into each market and tried to work out what's required to be successful, okay? And inside it, the actual engineering of the vehicle, it's, each one of those is, is different to each other in look, in power, in configuration, in why you buy it, and that's with our footballers. So then what does an Australian player have to have? Do you want questions now, Trev? Could be, yeah, yeah. Matthew Wern, your question, please, Matthew. Uh, yeah. um, do you think the current setup of the state-based youth league competitions is beneficial for producing our best players? Currently, it's not really best versus best. Most people would agree with that. With the 24 teams in youth league, MPL1 in New South Wales, and you often see score lines of 7 nil, 8 or 9. Um, and Football New South Wales have identified that with their TSP program, taking players away from clubs every two weeks on a Monday night to give them more additional elite matches. Um, do you think that's an issue with not enough elite matches on the weekends having been identified, but do you think that that structure could change to create more elite matches on the weekends and not artificially create elite matches? No. Well, yes. Okay. I understand your question. So there's one thing I want to, I want to sort of add to that discussion is I drive through Sydney traffic regularly. It's ridiculous. So if we, if we don't look for another way to regionalize things a little bit more and give um, a chance for clubs in, in uh, regional areas of, of Sydney, a chance to grow and develop, what you're going to end up with is, is, um, uh, yeah, kid wants to be a good footballer, but they're in, in traffic four hours a night to get to training. Um, so that is an issue we have to overcome. And whether we could go back to association-based stuff, I don't know what the answer is there. I do think that the elite games, what they provide, um, and so the elite matches we run eight times a year. Football New South Wales running a lot of other matches where they're bringing the A-League clubs in against the TSP hubs. That's fantastic. That means that kid gets a hit out against some higher-level players on a regular basis through Football New South Wales and still gets a club football on the weekend. Obviously, we don't want the blowouts, but um, I also think if you keep playing the best against the best uh, because that's who used to be the best and who currently has power, you're not actually planning for the future. I think we need to plan for the future where there can be strength all over Sydney and people can possibly be at a top-level club within 15 or 20 minutes of their home. Uh, Paul Ivers, your question, please, Mark. Just uh, kids from rural or remote, basically, do they have to move to make it to uh, to the level you're talking about and get in amongst the big fish in the city areas? Yeah, unfortunately, I think they do, mate. Um, it was interesting. I had a great conversation with... Um, with uh, Ron Smith the other day about about how the AIS used to be um, before it became a national team program under FFA. It used to belong to the AIS and the national and the government. And at that stage, they didn't always get the best players either because some one or two guys would stay with NSL clubs. But that gave them opportunity to bring kids from regional parts of of, uh, of Australia, including your Frank Farinas, including your um, Stevie Corricas, um, and they would come down from Cairns or whatever and, and join in. Uh, we, we just uh, earlier this year had an elite game in, um, in Brisbane, which was fantastic, and Gabor and his staff arranged for players to fly in um, from all over uh, Brisbane to play a part of that match and, and to, um, to be identified, and they were definitely of a level where they need to be considered. The next level is what do they go back to? And that's what I – like our Joeys came back from the World Cup um, – national team football and came back and, and played maybe four games in National Youth League or five games in National Youth League, whereas the French team went back and six or seven of them were playing League One the week after. So once you have a stimulus, once you show you've got talent, you eventually need to at some stage jump into an environment where day in and day out you're training against the best. And, and I think from, a, from the age of probably 15, 16, 17, that's got to happen on a daily basis so they can continue to progress. Okay, Trev, if you want to take us to the end of the presentation and... Will do, mate. And um, I'll get Brendan's question at the end. Yep. All right. So the bit I'm proposing um, is is if you start thinking about our, our, our players as a, um, as a product, this is, um, this is uh, Rainier Jesus Cavallo. 
He was captain of Brazil in their qualifying series leading into the World Cup. He scored all sorts of goals. We started doing analysis of him thinking, yeah, he's not bad. Okay? Rainier didn't go to the World Cup. He didn't go, I assume, because his club was looking after him and make sure he didn't get in. So that's a guy that didn't play at the World Cup, okay? His transfer, his transfer was 30 million euros. That's the deal. At their highest price, Aaron has been worth 14 million euros. At the highest price, Matty Ryan has been worth 10 million euros. So a 17-year-old kid is worth more than our two top socceroos at the moment. He hasn't done anything yet. He hasn't played first-team football for Real Madrid. If we're thinking about exporting a player to the other side of the world, imagine if myself as a head coach of a national team could sit down with, um, say it was a technical director or the head coach of a club at an A-league club and go, listen, we, we both got Jamie. Jamie's in my national team and he's in your club team. What about if we both agree, forget formation, forget tactics to win the game this weekend or not, what about if we both agree that we'll try and encourage him and we'll try and work with him on his pressing and we might even set some targets for him to um, regain the ball in the opponent's half X number of times per game. Well, that same data, don't worry about the graph, that same data appears on OptiData across the world. Any club can see it. And so if you listen to Victor Order's thing, he talks about when they go looking for a player for Leeds United that they, they do their normal scouting method, they watch players, they look for players of similar type, um, they use the platforms and type in a player and they see all players similar. And when they nail it down to the best three or four players that they want, they then crunch the data and there's 80, 80 points of data and they've weighted those according to position and it will tell them out of those four players which one is a Leeds United first target. That's the detail they're going to. So then I'm thinking about the analogy I'm giving you of the, the sports car and then I'm talking about the market you want to send them to and then I'm talking about that this data is available every time the national teams play, every time they play, and it's also available for all A-league matches. The thing I'm proposing is imagine you worked in this way and imagine here's a little thought. This is this is a also a little thing someone showed me, right? So all the people who want to own that player, who want to be the one of influence, think a bit like this, okay? We're doing a handshake, Luca, and every time I get my elbow behind my body, there's a point, and every time you get your elbow behind your body, there's a point. So we first start doing it. What does it look like? It looks like this. People, people wrestling to win. If we can get the Football Federation of Australia and all clubs, NPL, A-League, to start to go, hang on. We score more points because we're thinking about the player first. We're thinking about a common goal, about producing a product that our nation can be proud of. And when they're not good enough for Europe, maybe they're good enough for Asia. When they're not good enough for Europe or Asia or the club doesn't want to sell them, they stay in Australia. But they're a better player because everybody is thinking about how they make the player better. Okay, obviously the head coach of the club has to think about how to win the match. So then if we get to that, you know, do we have things like uh, an NPL club can receive a player on loan? And I know a lot of people are talking about trying to get the A-League in sync with the, with, with, the, um, with the NPL so that the same time of the year. Could we do things where when an A-League club wants to take a player from an, from an NPL club, um, is there some sort of transfer fee that's agreed? And we know they're not wealthy, so they can't spend a lot. But what about if you said, okay, we can, we can cap a transfer fee, but when we go and sell the player, you get a chunk too. You don't just get your normal compensation fee, you get a chunk. Because there's got to be some fairness in this and some recognition of everyone's part in the process. And then, then you start to target markets. You start to think about let's do some proper research into the last 100 players that Germany bought, not the ones they developed themselves, the ones they bought, the ones they bought from outside their country. If we're a car and we're trying to break into their market, we've got to, we've got to find what is our selling point, what is it that we have to offer. And the simple thing is the data. The data is there. Okay, so the early part of the process is, is cooperation between people at my level with the Joeys working with member feds, club TDs, etc., to to try and help the players as much as possible. And once they get into national team level, that's their chance to be on a world stage. And just quickly, I want to show you this. This is a this is the team that beat Nigeria. So seventh time Australia's ever played Nigeria. This is the team that won the match. 
the two boys, Tristan Hammond and Caleb Watts, um, were already at overseas clubs. In fact, uh, Caleb was born in England. His dad's a doctor from Sydney, moved to England, got married, son there, and then and – then, uh, so he, he had to learn the national anthem a bit later than everyone else. But they were there, right? Because of the tournaments we went to, um, Noah Bodich went to Hoffenheim before the World Cup, about two and a half months before the World Cup. And at the same time, the keeper who's not in this photo, Nicholas Bolokopich, he's now at Huddersfield Town. Why? Because we went to a tournament in England and he played for the national team. He was playing for Sydney United, 58, okay? He, he then comes over and plays for us against England and Brazil and now he's at Huddersfield Town, all right? Then we go to the World Cup and now uh, uh, Ryan Teague is at Famalicão. He's training with the first team only, five-year deal, Portugal. Okay, Cameron Pepion is just about to leave for Brighton and Hove Albion. I saw them recently in February. I was over there, and, and they're excited about him coming. When did they see him? They saw him playing last September against England. Then they did their research. Then they watched him at the World Cup, and they can pull the data on him. So national team is exposure. Imagine those five boys all left Australia, and they were scholarship holders in A-League club. That's five new kids who get that opportunity. And at the back of the photo there, um, Adam Pavlesic, the goalkeeper, he's been for trials in, in, in Strasbourg and uh, Roma, I think. And uh, Jordan Courtney Perkins, the number four who plays for Brisbane, um, he's already been looked at several times by Utrecht. So there's interest in him. That was my objective, was to get players to play at a level that someone wanted them. If the club here in Australia doesn't want to sell or the kid doesn't want to go, no problem. So what I'm proposing is that we start Instead of trying to start with um, legislation and trying to lock people into things and break all the rules, is to get people to see how they can contribute to our national team uh, being successful in the future. And that's it. That's my that's my little uh, idea to propose, thing to share, and I'm open to some more questions before you need to go. Thanks, Trevor. We've just got three questions to finish and... Uh and then we'll get moving. So, if, uh, Brendan Connolly, if you could uh, ask your question, please. Uh, this is a question. Uh, when do you feel we could potentially adopt, or I'm not aware, have a full-time youth program like clubs abroad, so train full-time four, five days a week like most clubs? Do you think that could happen? Yeah, I think, we're, I think um, uh, you know, it's all about the finances, to be honest, Brendan. Um, and uh, you know already uh, you, you saw you saw a seventeen year old bought by Real Madrid who probably won't play this season. Um, so the finances are massively different. Even the TV money that's involved there, you know the you know the value in the in the playoff match at Wembley Stadium to go from championship to what that's worth, most expensive game in the world. Um, so money talks there. Um, yeah, I, I don't know. If there's an answer about going full time. I think we have to work together. To help make things full time, yeah. Uh, David Perkovic, please. G'day, Trev. Thanks for G'day. the presentation. Really appreciate it. Um, my question is: Would you agree that sixteen to nineteen-year-olds now are generally not ready to compete in first-team football than 15, 20 years ago? And if yes, why do you think that's the case? And do you have any suggestions on how to overcome this issue moving forward? I don't agree. Um, I do. I, I saw Sean's great presentation last week, which talked about a real huge drop in kids' um, physical capacities at the younger age. Um, but otherwise, uh, otherwise, you you wouldn't see um, Phil Foden playing for Manchester City at seventeen. You wouldn't see it. So kids can do it. Um, maybe in one particular club, in one particular part of Sydney or in Australia, you might not have that player, but as a general rule, 100%, it's 17, 18, 19. And you know what? People are so concerned with the mistake the kid will make because he lacks experience and they're not so keen to look at what he might give you that the, the old player can't do. Now, if I build it into your contract, Dave, imagine if I signed you as an A-league coach and I gave you, instead of giving you ridiculous money, I gave you 50K, maybe even 100K less than what you thought. I said, you're head coach, but here's the thing. Every youth player you develop and push through our first team that we sell overseas, you get a piece of the pie. How would you think about it then? Uh, yeah, completely different. And if he dies after 60 minutes, you make a sub. But at the end of the day, 
if we don't start making a decision to talent, uh, to develop our own players and 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 do it with a purpose, where there's a result, um, I think then then really we're writing kids off before we gave them a chance. If I could just introduce our vice president Heather Garriak to say thanks to Trev. Trev was back in the mid nineties that. Uh you used to coach me at Westfield Sports High School and that presentation, Trev, was absolutely riveting. Um, you always wanted to be ahead of the crowd. You always have worked hard and have done your homework and you knew you had to work hard given you weren't an ex-pro as a coach. And from the FCA, uh, we just want to thank you for the presentation uh, in collabor- collaboration with the FFA as well. Um, it's sensational, um, I'm sure will be our future CD at FFA. Um, you're a superstar and so proud that, that you can contribute so much to Australia. You've got so much knowledge and plenty left in the team. So really appreciate it, Trev. Thank you.